Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. Welcome back. I am here in Atlanta with Eo Wang. Eo, thanks so much for joining today. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Jonathan. Likewise. So let's start with uh, let's start with an intro. Who who is Eo? <laughs> I am an athlete and also an educator. So I am primarily a science teacher in Marin County, California. And for the past um, four years, I've also been a professional trail and ultra runner who happens to dabble in the marathon. <laughs> So dabbling in the marathon means a lot, means different things for different people. Some people dabbling means they do it once a year. Some people, you know, it means they do it once and that satisfies them. But we're sitting here in Atlanta ahead of the Olympic trials. So I'd say your, your dabbling is a little more, um, a little faster than, than most people's (laughs) dabbling. So let's talk about that. Um, so you got into marathoning with the goal of qualifying for Boston. Is that is that correct? Yes. So I did not run at all in high school. Um, so I was never a part of an organized um, team as a kid. And when I went to Boston for college, I spectated the Boston Marathon my freshman year. From all the way over the river at <laughs> MIT, right? Yes. <laughs> I had no idea what marathoning entailed. I knew that there was such a thing as people running marathons, right. but I thought that was only for really insane people who wanted to punish themselves. Might still be true. <laughs> um, but I kind of got swept up in all of the energy surrounding Boston. Um, and for those of you who've been to Boston and Jonathan, you live in Boston and you totally experience it all spring. It consumes everyone between Hopkinton and Boston for, you know, four months leading up to Marathon Monday. And I think when I saw that for the first time, people streaming into Kenmore Square, looking elated, miserable, (laughs) in pain, and also with... All at the same time. All at the same time, (laughs) um, the whole spectrum of human emotion, I decided that I wanted to experience that and feel what it was like. So what year was that? That was 2003. Awesome. So you run a few miles since then, and your distance of choice has uh, seemed to grow a little bit. So how did, let's talk about the progression from that first marathon into, you know, you ran a blazing fast 50 mile this past fall. How did you, how did you get there? You know, going from a place where you didn't run in high school to winning one of the biggest 50 miles, 50 milers in the country. Um, I started by Googling how to run. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep running. (laughs) And came up with all sorts of results. I actually, you know, was starting from zero. I think the most running I'd ever done up until that point was the mile in high school, which I did not enjoy doing at the time. (laughs) Nobody does. Because I had no experience in running and it was not that fun. Um, But 
I took on this challenge. Okay, I want to run Boston. And then I did research into what that would entail. And you learn that, okay, in order to register for Boston, you have to have a qualifying time, which means that since I'd never run another marathon before, I would have to train for and run a marathon to get the Boston qualifying time and then was register for Boston. 335 at the time? I think it was 340. And so I chose another marathon that was in the fall um, in October. And what did you run? I ran the Cape Cod Marathon, which I didn't realize. So these are all the things that you learn from being a total non-runner is I didn't look at the course map (laughs) or the elevation and was just training around the Charles River, um, mostly working myself up to being able to run the marathon distance, not even thinking about speed or tempo or hills. Um, and the Cape Cod Marathon happens to be quite hilly, especially in the last 10K. And a lot of people don't think that the Cape is hilly. And right. I've done the Pamass Challenge, and you learn on the second day of that that <laughs> the Cape is very hilly. It is. Um, so I felt like I was prepared to do the marathon, but definitely not prepared for the hills. And so the last 10K were really hard. I walked some of the uphills, um, but I'd run fast enough to be well under the qualifying time. Um, So I ran 3.33 in my first marathon, and that qualified me for Boston. So then I registered for and ran Boston, I think, four straight years after that. My last one was in 2009, um, where I ran like just over three hours. So one of those years was when... Was that when the trials were in Boston in 2008? 2008, yeah. So was that the day before the Open? I mean, the the trials? The trials that year were the day before the marathon. Right, right, right. What was that experience like? It was really fun. I have great memories of watching Magda just go off the front and crush it. Yeah. And, you know, the course was a couple of loops around Memorial Drive, which is right next to the Charles River. And uh, my dorm was on Memorial Drive. (laughs) So I just walked outside my dorm and watched the women's and the men's um, trials race. That's awesome. Actually, I feel like that year... I think it was separate, It was only the women's race. They were on different days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they were in different places. I think so. So I listened to Magda talk about that experience while running along memorial drive and it was such an it was so cool to hear her talk about that um that experience like right where it actually happened so let's talk about magda and your connection to to goo and to being a professional ultra runner or professional trail runner Uh, so you went from googling how to run boston (laughs) to being a professional athlete so what's I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are interested in um, understanding like the life of a professional athlete and sort of the dynamics of how that works with with brands. So whether that's with social media or obligations or whatnot. So how did how did that start with working with brands? It certainly was never my goal or intention to end up being um, professional. I think. You know, the word professional uh, t- can encompass a wide variety of how you interact with the brand and how um, the brand interacts with you. I think 
through all of this journey, I've very much learned to be process oriented versus outcome oriented. So for example, I get questions all the time. How do I get sponsored? How do I uh, become a professional athlete? How do I get brands to pay me? And I always tell people, don't focus on that sort of outcome because you have to think about how you get there, right? It's about the journey and it's about the process. And for me, it was always about how can I progress as an athlete? Maybe the path goes towards something that is professional and sponsored, or maybe the path is just for personal growth and for personal improvement. And so when I started out doing the marathons, it was completely, I just want to see where I where can, you go. can go. Can I lower my time even more? I like the whole, um, the entire, you know, aspect, all the aspects of having this incremental goal that you work towards. Um, that's like, I want to take five more minutes off my marathon time. I want to take, you know, I want to get the Olympic trial standard. And so that was the first set of goals that I had was, I just want to see how much faster I yeah. can be at the marathon. Because if I'm going to do something, I want to feel like I'm always improving. I'm always stretching myself, Is that the pushing scientist my boundaries. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like play I mean, with some variables and see what happens. Yeah, well, I just have never been a very risk-taking person. You know, I don't go cliff diving or anything right. like that. I have to work myself up to <laughs> doing something like that. Um, so I always like the process of making small improvements over time. And some people like to just sleep in and that's a different mentality and a different mindset and different way to approach things. So I really loved the long runs that were part of the marathon training. And so I think it was a pretty natural progression for me to eventually start thinking about 50Ks and trail 50Ks. Um, I live, I moved from Boston to Marin County, California, just north of San Francisco, which is one of the meccas of trail running, I feel like, in, yep, in the definitely. US. The weather's beautiful year round. We have incredible trail access and open space if you live and it in marin, just smells incredible out there. <laughs> if you live in marin it like you have to trail run yeah. you know there's no avoiding it it's so, trail running and mh bread and butter exactly it's the run brunch <laughs> combo um so i started training more and more on trails, meeting other runners who are trail runners, and just signed up for a trail 50K in 2014 and found that I was pretty good at doing trail running and especially the ultra distances um, because I think I've always naturally had more endurance versus raw speed. Um, and I had some success in different races and then started talking to brands because I think back in 2014, 2015, trail running was kind of becoming more serious, more yeah. professional, more brands were getting involved. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity at that time to connect with people and to connect with brands. Um, and the first sponsor I actually had was Camelback, which is a local Northern California company. And 
they reached out to me after I won Lake Sonoma. Well, actually, they reached out to me before the first year I won Lake Sonoma and their gave timing me some was product. Great. <laughs> I know. Their timing was excellent because I was wearing their product when I won. But um, I think that's the I think that's the like critical part that it wasn't it was something you're already doing and they wanted to support you versus Yeah. Um I think I waited for quite a while before signing with a, a major what I would call a major sponsor like apparel or shoes because one I wanted to figure out what this sport means to me outside of being a sponsored athlete. Um, because I think when sponsors become involved, it's easy to get caught up in, oh, I'm doing it for the money or I'm doing it for the sponsor. I have to do these Whereas things. Whereas the messaging behind the sponsor is important, is what you're saying. Or like what they stand for or yeah, yeah. how it well, aligns. I also think that if you want longevity in any sport, you have to first truly be passionate about right. the sport and know why you're doing it outside of the monetary rewards. So for you, is it is it the way you put it was the the process oriented, but the the attainment of something that you can't do right now and and getting better over time. Is that what it is for you? Like continuing to level up as as you go? Yeah, I think so. So um I think at a certain point where when I was seeing myself, you know, winning races or winning bigger, more competitive races in trail and ultra, I thought, okay, now's the time when I can think about getting a sponsor or getting multiple sponsors, or maybe, you know, I can start reaching out to brands that I, whose product I love. Um, so I signed with Under Armour in 2017, um, and they like I got in touch of them with them through a good friend of mine, Topher Gaylord, who had joined the brand and was basically starting a trail running mm -hmm. team there. And I knew that they were kind of new in run and trail running. Um, but I really believe in Topher's vision and in his experience with the company. And I thought, okay, this is a person that I trust to be the leader of this category. And so I was really excited to join at an early time before they'd really fleshed out a trail running program. Um, and it's been a very rewarding and exciting journey with the brand for the past couple of years to see them grow, not just in trail running, but in run as a, in, as a general category. Yeah, I was on the phone with uh, Jamie last week, and it's cool to hear what they're doing um, in Baltimore and Portland and mm -hmm. and sort of the innovation that's happening, but uh, more importantly, what they're doing in Portland to help support athletes like yourself. And um, it's a really cool facility that they have. And, and we had some interesting conversations around athlete performance. And it's really more than just, you know, slapping a logo on it and calling it a day. Yes. So we were actually all up in Portland last week, which is great timing because it got me all excited <laughs> to come and race. Um, so they have a human performance training center up there where they do the cutting edge research and also implementation of modalities in not just training, but also recovery. So I think 
having access to facilities like that and also having access to really experienced and knowledgeable people who work there or who are affiliated with the facility um, just opens up a new like area to support your training. Definitely. Um, so let's talk. So we, we talked 2003, 2014, 2017. Let's jump to 2019. Uh, North Face 50. Um, I vividly remember seeing you absolutely in the zone. You were like mile 30. <laughs> yeah. And I was coming downhill at mile 12 or 13. This was after... After cardiac? cardiac. Okay. And so descending, uh, yes, yeah. descending into Muir Woods. Yes. Um, and you were so far ahead of the rest of the field that I was like, where, where is everyone else? <laughs> um, and you won. And you've, you've lined up at that race a handful of times and it hasn't gone well. Uh, <laughs> I have a pretty similar situation. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm excited about, yeah. <laughs> about how yours turned out. I'm hoping mine does too at some point but let's talk well, about now they've i know race. <laughs> so <laughs> i have to find replacements for tnf so now. i'm over three and you went one for four right so it was actually yeah so i registered for it four times i think so the first time i registered for it was in 2015 i believe and I started the race and pulled out partway because I had a hamstring injury, um, which I'd had going into the race. And it's one of those days where you're like, Ma maybe magically it'll <laughs> yeah. go away. No, not true. Um, 2016, I was registered for the race and I was putting in a really good training block and fell during a training run. I think two weeks before the race and sliced my knee open and had like four stitches wow. right in the <laughs> middle of my knee. Um, and therefore couldn't recover in time for the race. 2017, I was on my around the world extravaganza trip. So missed the race. 2018, I registered and it was canceled due to the wildfires. <laughs> and that's, that's the year when I thought, man, am it's I not meant just, to be. Is this just not meant to be? Um, that's when I ended up running CIM. And then 2019 was finally, finally the year when I managed to start and finish <laughs> and win. <laughs> and now the race got canceled. <laughs> It's like you went out with a bang. I, I ended it. <laughs> you ended as high as you possibly can. They were like, we we held it enough times so that EO could race it and win. And now and we don't need to have it, it anymore. So, so I was talking with your coach, Mario. Um, so EO is coached by Mario Frioli. Um, and I was talking with him and we were at the same shakeout the day before. And he was just like so high on your potential for that race. And it was mm -hmm. so cool to see. So what's it like living in the same place as your coach? I know you go, you guys run a lot together. What's, what's that dynamic like? I love it. Um, I love that I can meet him for runs. Um, he actually used to live much closer to me than he does now. Um, my husband and I bought a house. Um, it's almost a year ago now. We bought it last February in Kentfield and it just so happened to be less than a block from 
oh, wow. where Mario and Christine were living. I, I literally would like <laughs> cross the street, run through a little parking lot, and it was his building. So we would just run together a couple days out of the week because it was so convenient. Um, and then he and Christine purchased their own home now in Novato, which is way up I would there. say 20 to 30 minute drive from our house now. So now getting together takes a little more coordination. Right. Um, and we probably get together at least once every other week, but we try for once a week. But sometimes, especially with the traffic patterns, it just gets more difficult to um, meet up. But I like being able to see my coach in person and to actually run with my coach because I'm not a very good phone person. <laughs> if somebody calls me on the phone, I have a hard time having like a very detailed conversation with them um, because I'm I've always been this way. I like hate having long conversations on the phone. So having phone catch-ups i felt like just it didn't work for you enough for me to fully convey the things i needed to convey and also having your coach like be able to actually watch how you're running because we all like to fool ourselves sometimes (laughs) and be like my form is fine or like i'm not totally lopsided right now um so mario like will when we run you know, give me little pointers you know you know your shoulders are starting to tighten up so that's really helpful because he's able to provide insight on how I look. Real-time feedback. Yeah, real-time yeah. feedback. Um, and I trust that feedback quite a lot because he has so much knowledge and experience. Um, and it's great to have him, especially when we can do a workout together or he can just be there when I do a workout um, because then he can either make adjustments on the fly or be like, hey, you killed it. You looked great. Um, I just love that kind of feedback. Cool. So one thing you mentioned was your uh, the trip that you did in 2018? Is it 2018? Um, it was 2017 to 2018. So was... How many countries did you visit on that trip? Oh, we visited 30 countries. 30 countries. Over 10 months. So you were working with a family and teaching science and traveling around the world. What what was that like? It was so surreal and so adventurous and hard. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of the most incredible experiences of my life so far. I think it's something that, again, I never would have dreamed of doing. Um, but it's, uh, people say all the time, oh, that was so lucky or, you know, what a lucky circumstance. And Do you believe in I, luck? I believe that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I love that. I don't remember who exactly first coined that phrase, but I really believe in the sentiment behind it. I think that we all have these crazy opportunities that pop up in life. And when you think you're lucky is when you're able to take advantage of it. Yeah. Right. So I think that this opportunity came about because I learned how to be a teacher. 
I worked at the school for a number of years, met this family, and then my husband and I were both in the right time in our life with the right amount of experience and preparation to say yes to this opportunity and to um, take part in it. I think we learned so much ourselves. You know, we were the teachers um, and we had to cover all of the academic subjects. So not just science, but like math, history, wow. English, Mandarin Chinese. Um, so we, a lot of it was figuring out, okay, how do we teach these subjects? And also suddenly, how do we teach these subjects on the back of a dive boat in the Galapagos? <laughs> you know, and Curveball. I think one of the biggest things that I learned how to do was how to be adaptive and flexible and to not sweat the little things. Because on a huge trip like that, first of all, you have almost no control of the itinerary, um, especially when you are an employee, essentially. Um, so we just had to go with the flow yeah. with whatever was next up on the itinerary. And sometimes the schedules would get changed and you'd be like, okay, we're going back to the hotel and packing <laughs> up and going to a different country. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that takeaway lessons like that are able to be transferred into running? Absolutely. I think after that trip, I became much more okay when things don't go your way, right? When things are, when, like, for example, I don't get nervous about travel at all anymore. Like, I know how to travel. Yeah. I know what systems I need to have ready. Like, we were literally in different hotels, sometimes every two nights for like six to eight weeks in a row before landing somewhere yeah. where we were, you know, a, a week was yeah. an exceptionally long time when we would stay in one place. I had a trip like that um, in high school. I was in Israel on a uh, six-week program. And yeah, if you were in the same bed three nights in a row, yeah. like that was lovely. Yeah. And you just like, you just figure it out. And you don't have time to sweat the details right. because it just doesn't matter. Right. It's like, okay, pack what you need and you'll figure it out from there. So we're sitting here in Atlanta. Uh, it's three hours ahead of uh, where you live. Does that play to your favor um, with a, a 12-20 race? I definitely appreciate the 12-20 race versus like <laughs> 6 a 7 a.m. Yeah. race on the East Coast. So I think that the time difference won't be as critical um, for all of the athletes who are arriving from all over the country. It might actually be more difficult for the athletes who are East Coast. Oh, yeah. I mean, like who runs at 1220? <laughs> <Right. laughs> Who's prepared to That's race pretty luxurious. Yeah. Um, and I think it will definitely help because I certainly couldn't fall asleep last night. Yeah. Um, just because... My circadian rhythm is not there. So I appreciate the later start and I'm not so worried about going to bed at a certain time or like forcing myself to go to bed or taking melatonin. Will you like sleep that. in pretty late on Saturday? I will probably be too nervous to actually sleep in. I'll sleep in as late as I can. I'll set an alarm probably for nine just to make yeah. sure I have something that will remind <laughs> right. me to get up. Um, yeah, you got to race in three hours. And then I don't think I'll actually be able to sleep till nine, but 
that's the goal. Anyway. Got it. So um, I know you you love food and you love eating. What are you going to be eating on Saturday morning? Saturday morning, I will have stroopwafel and almond butter. That sounds lovely. Black coffee. And I can't eat very much before race. So even though the race is later... I'll just try to keep it mellow so my metabolism doesn't yeah. get revved up and hopefully I don't show up hungry. But I will most likely just nibble on waffles and have a gel before the race. And then Cool. Well, yeah, you don't have to it. move very far to get out to your balcony here. <laughs> my indoor, weird indoor, indoor balcony. balcony. <laughs> We're sitting, I guess the theme of Atlanta is just wide open spaces. And so everything Indoors. is wide open, wide, indoor, wide open spaces. indoor spaces. So is, is it really open? Um, just lots of, lots of space. Um, so we've got a really exciting race. Are you nervous you don't get to, or are you a little disappointed you don't get to watch it unfold? Or I guess a you do watch bit. it, get to watch get it to unfold. I get to watch the race around me unfold. <laughs> I don't, I won't get to see how the front of the pack unfolds. Um, but there's always the rebroadcast I can watch Definitely. later. So the the women's field i think is particularly interesting this year what's it like to be starting with a pack like that and racing with a pack like that I with that much on the line really fun i think having a lot of people around you provides a lot of energy um it also means you kind of have to be careful because this course has a lot of turns a lot of rather sharp turns and i've seen people wipe out whether at the trials or at other marathons when they've been in a pack and everyone's like trying to get the tightest it's like line. Track, uh, yeah. Track elbows. So I think for the first couple of miles, my main goal is just to stay out of trouble and stay calm. Um, that's kind of one of my mantras that I take in, especially into ultra races is like, you always just can't lose your shit because <laughs> that'll de derail, did, yeah. derail your race really fast. And, you know, don't be worried about what other people are doing. Um, I think the nature of this course is so rhythm breaking with the turns and the hills that um, I think a lot of people are probably going to start too fast and too hard. So my goal is to, Keep the effort level low on the low end at the start and, you know, wait for that last lap. <laughs> nice. Um, so one of the things that has been talked about a lot, um, the hills. So some people are saying, oh, it's so hilly. It's so hilly. And then on on Goo, on the um, documentary that, that Goo put out, you have Scott Fobble saying it's super hilly. And then you have you saying it's not hilly. I'm a trail runner. This 1,300 feet, that's like one climb. So so there are a lot of trail runners running in the trials. What, what do you think, what, what do you think that'll be like going from a, a type of race where there is no, um, where pace doesn't matter? And I guess, you know, pace matters a little less in a, in a race like this versus a time trial race. Um, but what, what are you going to carry over from, from trails to, to the trials? Maybe that'll be the caption yeah. of this podcast, <laughs> trails to the trials. I think the main thing I'm going to carry over is how to pay attention to effort versus splits. I don't think that this is course is very conducive to keeping track of every mile splits because it's just 
always uphill or always downhill so you can easily get into your head if you start looking at your splits do you think that favors the trail runners i think so i think it favors people who have strength and also who are experienced on rolling terrain whether it's trails or road that they've trained on um i think people will be surprised how much their pace will vary between when they're going uphill and when they're going downhill. And a lot of times that can be a mental hurdle because you might look down at your watch and see like, oh my gosh, I'm doing a 645 right now. Um, But when you're running that kind of terrain on trails, you're always more concerned with your effort level. Like, is this a sustainable effort at which I'm going uphill? Um, And then downhill, you can open it up a bit more, but you also don't want to totally gas it because you'll destroy your quads. So I think having trail running experience is going to be great, especially for this course, uh, because we have lots of turns. I I know how to stay upright and stay safe. Um, I know how to kind of measure out a certain amount of effort um, over rolling hills and rolling terrain. And I also know how to not overcook it on the downhills. And what, what is your what is your take on Jim? Everyone's been asking. The Walmsley question. The Walmsley question. <laughs> I think we'll go there on this too. I think he's going to do great. I think this course plays to his strengths too. Speaking of coming from a trail yeah. background, I mean, he's certainly shown that he can perform on race day. He's a great um, racer and he will give it all. And I think that his recent block of training has been (laughs) off the charts. So as long as he's not, he's been following the Japanese. Yeah. So as long as he's not overdone it, which I think if he has, you know, that's certainly a strategy that's worked for countless runners before him. Um, I think that he will make a mark. I think a lot of it, will have to do with what the other contenders and what the other men's front runners will do. Like, are they going to take it out like a time trial and try to hit certain splits and, you know, whittle the field down immediately? Or are they going to have a big pack that goes out together and then someone might put the hammer down later in the race? Um, So I don't know. We will see. This podcast will will come out after the, the race has happened. So... Um, yeah, I think he could be top 10. I just don't think he quite has the leg turnover to make top three, but I think he can definitely do well at this race. Yeah. I think there may be some interesting surprises on both the men's and women's sides side. And I hope that, I hope that he's one of the the happy surprise. I also think there's going to be a lot of carnage. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was. Uh, That's we, a ter- term we use a lot in trail <laughs> racing, but I think it's going to happen on Saturday. I saw too. a lot of carnage at North Bay. Speaking of carnage. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it'll be interesting. We were trying to decide where we we're going to spectate from and we landed on the three mile out and back stretch of Peachtree because we see the runners six times there. Yeah. But it was like, Oh, but the the last 5K loop would be just fascinating to see. You'd have time to get there. That's true. Um, Well, awesome. So what are you going to be doing post-race? 
I'm going to find somewhere to get a really large meal <laughs> Saturday night. Um, I am. I always go for burger, fries, and some sort of ice cream. Nice post race. So that's what I'll be doing. So let's talk <laughs> about for food. Let's talk about nutrition for a bit. Um, nutrition seems to be something that you focus on. Um, you have a, a nutrition sponsor, Goo. Their tagline is "Eating is Training." Um, and you post these delicious meals on Instagram all the time. These bowls that you that you eat look incredible. <laughs> so let's talk about how you use nutrition to facilitate um, recovery from all the work that you do. I think that you should eat whole foods. So that means I don't buy a lot of pre-processed products. Um, I think that you need to eat a variety of foods. So I am like, I don't want to say that I have, I follow, you know, strict diet guidelines other than the concept of eating whole foods and to eat a variety of foods. So I like to cook a lot. Um, I eat a wide variety of meats, vegetables, fruit, grains. I eat desserts. You know, I, I like to know how my food is made and who has made it. So I prefer to go to like the local bakery. I made bread and butter mm -hmm. to get bread or to um, get pastries because I trust their quality of ingredients and I trust the process that they went through to make those products. Um, and I think that a lot of people underfuel themselves, which impacts both race performance and life. <laughs> you know, I've definitely fallen into the trap of like, I'm going to train a hundred miles a week. I'm also going to go to work 40 hours a week. I want to maintain all my friendships and eventually something Something's has to give. give. And a lot of times when people feel that way, it's because they're not eating enough. And I definitely now appreciate that feeling of being hangry, you know, where you suddenly become not friendly, like kind of in a bad mood and not really able to function. And I'll recognize, oh, I just need to eat more food. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, and I don't know if it's, if it happens as much in trail running as it does in road running, but I think that that's a, a major um, missing piece for a lot of people. I think that, you know, we see a lot of bone stress injuries and there are certain bone stress injuries that it's, under fueling that's likely the biggest contributor to it. Yeah. I think especially for women, um, you know, you fall into the female athlete triad, which I think they've renamed uh, Red S. Yeah. Red S. Um, and that's a dangerous cycle to fall into because, yes, it's true that the lighter you are, maybe the faster your times will be, but longitudinally you're going to pay for that yeah. with a stress fracture or overtraining or just a weakened immune system. I think system. the problem is that it works and then it, does. it doesn't work mm -hmm. and it works until it doesn't work and it's not a sustainable approach in the long term but it's a sexy option in the short term and you get you know women in a college program four years three years that's all that matters yeah. 
And that's the problem. It's very results-based. We were talking about the process versus the the results. When you're a college coach mm-hmm. incentivized to win, you'll win. You'll do what you need to win versus, I forget who I was having the conversation with, but they were suggesting that we have some metric for college coaches that incentivizes them based on how many of their athletes are still running post-collegiately. I think a shocking amount of collegiate athletes don't run. Yeah, even two years, like a year or two years because they're burned out. So I think figuring out structurally like how how that change needs to be made um, is is a next step. I often think a lot about how thankful I am that I didn't go through a high school or college running program because I think I would have gotten hurt or burned out or that stress would affect my future running and the longevity of my running. So I think one of my goals is to keep running at a high level as long as I can. And I think part of that is you have to let go of this like certain body image right. that you have to achieve or that you associate with being a, a professional distance runner. Um, and you have to understand that that's so much stress on your body to maintain that level of leanness right. or that lem- level of lightness um, that you can't hold on to that for a lengthy period of time. Um, and now I actually am kind of secretly happy or proud when people say like, oh, you're not as skinny as I would expect a, <laughs> an ultra runner to be. And I'm just like, good. <laughs> it's like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, I guess. it's like a weird compliment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird to compliment people on their bodies, first of all, right. in that way, um, because you never know what someone's experience with their own body is right. like. Um, but so I would encourage your listeners to never compliment <laughs> a runner that way. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds weird. Um, okay, so fast forward 10 years. What what would you be really excited about having accomplished? Hmm... So in the next 10 years, um, I will be excited. So going again to process versus outcome. um, I will be excited if one, I'm still running and training and racing. (laughs) So I think accomplishing another 10 years of running the way I want to run, which is to train seriously and race seriously, I think that could be, that would be best thing that I could possibly hope for. You know, you never know what will happen in terms of injuries or life or health. Um, So if I can maintain good health, uh, good happiness, and my love of running, that'll be a good 10-year goal. Nice. I was talking with a friend yesterday about another friend who is a very good trail runner. And, uh, and the decision we came to was, you know, if he just runs for the next five years without getting injured, he could be the best ever. <laughs> it's just like, that's the secret. Just don't get injured. Consistency. Just consistency. And I think that's like the unsexy secret to success. It's just like, be good at being good. Not, you don't need to be great. You just need to be good for a long time. Um, and it is hard sometimes because, you might see other 
people or other things happen where you're like, wow, they made, they like had a great result, made a big splash. Suddenly they're everywhere. Like people flock to them or sponsors flock to them. And that can be a little bit challenging if you're someone who's, you know, not so much of a leaping in right. and making a big splash, but be patient. You know? Definitely. <laughs> uh, what do you wish people knew about you? I've done so many podcasts that I feel like people <laughs> already know everything about me. <laughs> Fair enough. What are you, what are you scared of? Um, I think I'm scared of, Hmm, that's a great question. I'm scared of being static. What do you mean by that? I'm scared of not having times when I'm pushed out of my comfort zone. Like I'm scared of being bored. Like status quo? Yeah. Yeah. I'm scared of like being stuck in one place doing one thing forever. Is that why you love to travel? That's part of why I love to travel. Um, it's also part of why, like, I'm always taking on crazy jobs. Or <laughs> <laughs> so, where crazy do you think projects. that? Where do you think that comes from? I also think that's why I love teaching because yeah. no day is ever the same. Um, I certainly wasn't that way as a kid. I think it's just a reaction of having spent a lot of my adolescence and youth being very very results and outcome oriented especially academically and wanting to know exactly how to get a hundred percent on a test and like following this very narrow yeah. prescribed way like of this doing is how things, things are yeah. expected to go like you get straight a's you apply to college you like get a good job this is the progression right. um and i think i eventually realized that just wasn't for me cool what are what are some things you wish you knew back in 2003 when you started running? Besides how to run Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that one out too. So actually some yeah. advice on that would be good. <laughs> and, and North Face. If you could tell me how to run North Face, that'd be great too. <laughs> oh man. I wish I knew that proper footwear is really important. Um, I think I spent quite a few years running in inappropriate shoes. Um, I wish I knew that story of my 2020. Yeah. I wish I knew how great it, it is to train with a community and with other people. Cause I started out just running by myself all the time. Um, and now I prefer not to ever run by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. So if we see you out on the course this weekend or on the trails in the future, what is the best thing to shout at you as you run by? Ooh. What would best. make you what would make you smile or, or or be more motivated? Oh, I never smile during a race. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I was I think, like, damn, she is locked in right now. <laughs> flow state. My flow state does not include smiling. Um, I'm like the opposite of Elliot Kipchoge. I, the, the more painful it is, the less I'm smiling. Um, I think the best thing to yell at me... Well, I'll tell you, the only time that someone's ever made me smile at a race 
is Alex Varner. Do you know Alex yeah. Varner? He was at Lake Sonoma at the halfway point, and he was kind of hanging out. I was getting refueled and restocking my hydration vest, and he just casually calls me by the nickname that my husband uses for me. <laughs> and I like almost Which burst is? out. I'm not going to say it on the <laughs> podcast because then people are going to just yell it at me every time. That's going to break my flow state. That would, that would expose the, the millions of listeners we have out and here. I, I was like, I did a double take. And after, Sean, the race, is that you? after the race, Alex was like, I almost got you to smile. <laughs> So, key takeaway here, shout smile. (laughs) Awesome. We'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining today, and we'll see you out there not smiling. (laughs) Thanks, Jonathan. (laughs) That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run, and in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too.